0: Good morning everyone, I'm Mel. And I'm Pippa, we're the creators and editors of EarthRights, the podcast and platform that focuses on the connection between human rights and environmental issues. Just a quick message before we begin,
1: the views and research presented on this podcast are either our own or referenced on our website, www.earthrights.co.uk. We generally always record a few weeks ahead of release, so some facts or situations may have changed during this time. Today we're going to be looking at the language of climate change with Pippa. She's going to be telling us about her dissertation and the research that she did on Barack Obama's use of conceptual metaphors in his speech at the Paris Climate Change Conference in 2015. So... Pippa, why did you choose Obama's speech? What
0: was your thoughts behind it all? So in terms of um, political speeches about climate change, this is probably the landmark speech because the kind of paris climate conference was a yeah a huge moment um where each country signed an agreement saying they would determine a plan and regularly report on their contribution it undertakes they undertake to mitigate global warming and there was like a universal pledge to keep global temperatures below 1.5 degrees celsius that was at the time huge because you know it needs like to, in order to mitigate climate change, you need the wealthy countries to lead the way and like offer financial support and show that it's possible to developing countries. So I mean, unfortunately, in 2017, um, Donald Trump removed the US from the Paris Climate Agreement, which I think many people will agree is a huge tragedy. Um, the fact that we went from a progressive politician who was like forward thinking in terms of climate change mitigation to a politician that outright doesn't believe in climate change, it's quite yeah. scary the transition that happened there. Um, but yeah, I chose to focus on this speech because, like I said, it was it's a landmark speech in terms of climate change politics. Um, and I did ideally want to compare the language that's used by Obama compared to Trump but because of time restrictions, like um, there's a, t- a word limit. But this is something we would definitely on the podcast would love to kind of explore more because I think it's really interesting to look at how important language is and the differing language that different politicians use and how that kind of reflects their views in some way or another.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, as you were saying, these conferences that are have been taking place on the subject of climate change um are very powerful and monumental and people are going to be wanting to set a set a standard and um targets for the future so the way they do that and the way they sort of market themselves as nations and um as you say um america needed to lead that um with its sort of prowess and power on the global stage so the way it Um, did that was going to be hugely important.
0: Mm, Definitely because when you look at more recent climate conferences like COP26 and things like that the general consensus is that no real you know the politicians talk and they say yes yes we'll do this we'll do this but there's no real like concrete on paper we have signed a binding legal agreement that this is what we will aim to achieve so the Paris Climate Conference in that way was the first time anything like that had been promised where it's, yeah, it's a legal agreement mm. to keep global temperatures below 1.5 degrees.
1: Yeah. And just for a, a, just as a note, um, COP uh, stands for Conference of the Parties and they are United Nations run conferences about the climate and people can pledge or make binding arrangements as, as to their environmental targets. So Pipa, moving on, why linguistics? Um, What do you think linguistics can do to our wider ambition in helping combat climate change?
0: Yeah, so that is a really interesting question. And basically to break things down, my essay was based on the principle that metaphors or conceptual metaphors, which is kind of the linguistic term, are pervasive in everyday life. And therefore, not only do they influence thought, but they influence action. So therefore, the metaphors used in a political speech are hugely powerful. And I kind of set out to break down and analyse the metaphors that Obama will have purposefully chosen or his whoever writes his speeches purp- purposefully chose to use. Like it was very calculated um, the way these speeches are written. So in terms of metaphors if we just start there I think it's really easy to think that metaphors are just a rhetorical device used in like poetry or prose but in reality English the English language is built around metaphors um, and some of our very most basic concepts that we speak about all day long um, are in metaphorical but we just don't Maybe realize that because it's so embedded in the language. So um, an obvious example is the conceptual metaphor of happy is up And sad is down. So for example, we might say um, I'm feeling very low today or god I'm on such a high after I won that award and that's an example of like the metaphor being pervasive in our language or another common example that's discussed is that an argument is a battle So you might say oh i won that argument with him or you might say oh he shot me down after i said that so seeing an argument as something you can win or using the language of he shot me down it's like this Mm. metaphorical view that an argument is a battle um and kind of researchers have pointed to the fact that these conceptual metaphors are important because they can influence how we think about a social issue so the, the fact that we view arguments as a battle that that impacts how we construct our arguments and how we view our arguments with other people. And if we instead viewed arguments as a dance, we would then act in arguments in a different way. So I think it's really interesting that it's like the way our language is structured influences yeah, our um, behaviour and therefore can influence on social issues.
1: I guess it also, what you're saying is it therefore also um, impacts our articulation so even then it was really hard to find for you a different word to say oh we we are when we're uh, when we're arguing we're fighting well what Mm -hmm. how else can you describe it because that's how uh, when when we're doing this thing called arguing we always feel like we need to be persuasive and get the other person on board to what we're doing and in that sense that it's very adversarial there's a there's always going to be one person on one side and one person on the other exactly
0: and it's so embedded in our understanding that it's quite hard to understand that that is a metaphor because you kind of just think well arguing is fighting like they're the same thing but it's like when you kind of break it down you're like if we did view arguments with a different metaphorical structure then perhaps we would see the act of arguing itself in a different way and like yeah this is all based on the principle that language influences thought and that's based on the belief that like mental representations and thoughts have a linguistic structure um and because of this there's been lots of like researchers and scholars who have said that language can therefore be limiting to our thought because we can only understand what we can say um, and there's kind of some really interesting research that have, like, shown um, where this is true. So, um, and basically every... Well, I think every single um, community across the globe her a name for black and white. So not all communities have um, words for specific colors. So it's, like, um, Inuits have a specific word, have, like, a 100 different words for ice because that's something they deal with in their daily life. Yeah. And so the more more complex range of words we have for different colours so like magenta, um, peach, I don't know loads of different colour words that are pink but therefore we can comprehend the different colours um, mm. because we have language and I mean it's a really hugely complex topic and very philosophical but yeah. I think it's fascinating to kind of and you know it's a big argument like does our language limit thought, or is our thought beyond language and yes, yeah, usually philosophical i 'm going to have to hold
1: my tongue to say so many different things that are springing to mind, but I, what you're saying as well is that our understanding and well not just our understanding, but actually real things exist because we have a a way to make them so, so we mm-hmm. talk about them and therefore they exist whereas perhaps what you're saying is if we didn't have a word to describe it would it exist like you're (laughs) saying with the colours so if if there isn't a word to describe this shade of green to us in England with a limited set of greens the 10th green won't exist because we don't have it whereas to someone in the Amazon rainforest they would have that green and they it would
0: exist to them it's really fascinating and then taking this like a step further beyond how like our language can influence our thoughts is there's been lots of researchers who've suggested through experiments that our language can influence action and more specifically um, because that's the focus of my research and that metaphor use can influence action um, action. So there was a study um, published in 2017 where they where the researchers analysed different ways of talking about climate change, and participants were asked to read an article that either contained language suggesting a war against climate change, oh. a race against climate change, or just a non-metaphorical framing of the issue. And then the participants were asked to make judgments on the feasibility of the goals described. Um, And the results revealed that participants who read the article containing the war metaphor Responded to the issue with a greater sense of urgency compared to the race metaphor or no metaphor at all So yeah, this provides like further evidence For the pervasive nature of metaphors in our language, but also in influencing thought and in some cases action Mm -hmm. so based on all of this like fascinating research that I studied and read about I kind of wanted to investigate specifically how the metaphors um, in climate change conversation can perhaps be influential to action Uh Um, and therefore I chose to focus on Obama's speech because I thought that was as I mentioned like a landmark speech in the climate conversation um oh yeah and there's there's another really interesting study that's actually been quite widely it's a linguistic study but it's been very widely covered in like mainstream media um that where some researchers analyzed the metaphors and the language used to describe um refugees and found that the the language was hugely negative with words like swarm and um A mob of refugees on these dinghies and it's like this language that's in the mainstream media has like a pervasive impact on the views that the public then have of the threat that the refugees pose and it's like why should this like hugely negative language be used against these people and I think it is really interesting because that had a really big impact that study on kind of the wider understanding of like how the media should report when they're meant to be unbiased and all this stuff so
1: yeah especially when they're talking about such critical issues um like refugees because even even um i think actually it was in obama speech the the use of a flood of people there'll be a flood of people or an influx is often used i, I don't think it's necessarily problematic if you can come to it from the standpoint of okay yeah That's the reality, unfortunately. Lots of people are going to be uprooted from their homeland. But the problem that does arise is that many people don't come from that perspective and then imagine that there's going to literally be a flood of people and they think, oh, gosh, what's going to happen to our services? What's going to happen to our shops? We can't handle it. And actually, that's not their decision. So it it creates a a climate of fear. Mm,
0: Um, Exactly and this is why like this kind of research in my um, opinion is very important because like you might just be like oh like metaphors on climate change or who really cares but it's like from that specific example of the language used for refugees like you can see in the UK the hatred and the anger that is towards refugees and like um, and I think the media has a big role to play in that so it and like fundamentally language has a huge role to play in that Um, and another kind of really interesting thing to just like put this put my research into kind of more more context is that a couple of years ago I think two years ago maybe the Guardian said they were going to change the language they use when talking about climate change so Mm -hmm no longer referring to it as global warming because as probably like a lot of us understand that that's quite a misleading concept Um, and instead calling it a climate crisis or a climate emergency because that is what it is and I think it is that's the first one of the first steps to real action is using language that isn't wishy-washy like climate change the climate's changing no this is a crisis Mm. and it's an emergency and we have to act and for me i was like like wow like round of applause for making that like a public decision
1: when you're talking about metaphors and more specifically conceptual metaphors can you explain um specifically what they are
0: so, so a conceptual metaphor, by definition, is understanding one idea or concept in terms of another. So life, one concept, is a journey, another concept, and you understand the two as being the same thing.
1: Do you think that the metaphors used in Obama's speech, as well as other climate change speeches, do you think they help us reason with this complex issue?
0: Definitely, I wouldn't say that it's like that the metaphor necessarily helps you like understand the complexity of the issue. But the thing with something like climate change is it is such a vast thing to understand because you realise that this like threat um, in quotation marks is not just like something we can like kill or destroy. It's our like we are the problem basically, our own behaviour and. To mitigate climate change, it involves completely changing the way we live our lives. So I don't think that necessarily the metaphors can help you understand that, but I think framing climate change in a certain way, so as a threat or um, as a monster, definitely helps you understand the severity of the issue. And I think that's what's really important because, yeah, as I said, like language influences thought, and if we use our language and our metaphors to to highlight the severity of the issue then that's only gonna like invoke action or like the it's need constructive. yeah
1: exactly so also on page 10 you explain that journey metaphors um specifically mm-hmm. life is a journey um, that these can encourage patients in trying to achieve a worthwhile goal um this is put in comparison to the the use of conflict conflict metaphors which instill a sense of urgency um i was wondering which you find more appropriate to the issue of climate change um of course you can say both um for me i thought conflict metaphors appeal less because they seem to refer to perhaps less sustainable goals and might suggest a more sort of argumentative and angry approach but as you said perhaps we need that kind of sense of urgency so i'm just in, interested in how how we can ha- kind of harness the this comparison that's made with the metaphors
0: yeah i think definitely in terms of the climate conversation um conflict metaphors are more important because we don't really like obviously we need to have patience in terms of achieving the final goal like transitioning our whole transport fleet to electric can't just happen with the click of the fingers but also we don't really have the time for like lifelong patience we need um urgency and only when people understand i think that climate change is a threat to human lives Mm. and not just like an abstract threat that might make a few houses flood and maybe the polar bears will go extinct once they understand that climate change is a threat to like maybe not our lives but the lives of the next generation our children's generation that's when you get like action but saying that I do kind of like question the like productivity I guess of these conflict metaphors because like you know the language of like the fight against climate change like how like, like we need collective action but it's not a battle that we can fight against in any way that we've understood a thing threat before and I think that's what makes climate change so difficult to understand because well not difficult to understand but makes it so easy to just think you know what I'm not going to think about that because and just therefore be like Trump and just pretend it doesn't exist Mm. because it's such an overwhelming um, problem that is caused by every like you know everything we're doing recording this podcast is contributing to climate change and you know the way we live our lives
1: Uh.
0: uh, in the 21st century is contributing to climate change so it's not like a fight where we can just build up walls and protect ourselves it's a fight where we need collective action and like we are the threat really kind of question um, i don't know what i i think there's definitely like room for this view that like climate change is a threat that we need to fight but i'm just like questioning whether that just like you know it's like similar when people say like oh they lost their battle to cancer and as much as it's nice to understand that the person like fought really hard but also that language is kind of problematic because they didn't lose yeah. that kind of implies that they were weak or you know they're like they I don't know you you're like health you don't really have like a choice over that it's not something you know oh well, yeah I don't know so I think that's in the, a very,
1: an interesting comparison
0: yeah it's just a similar thing where climate change isn't something we can just like fight against it's like collective change um, but I'm not really sure what the appropriate metaphor is for that but I think it's just interesting to break it down and think about how um useful is that type of language when talking about climate change?
1: what you're saying is um made me one question I was sort of we're using metaphors and a lot of the things you pick out in your dissertation show that climate change and and the impacts are personified a lot um, which means they're they're made into sort of some human form and I wonder whether similar to coronavirus actually Mm -hmm. um and the talk about the pandemic it's not something we're able to visualize or see because it's not the behavior or the actions of other humans which we can quite happily as you said fight against do whatever we need to do to combat it in in the way that we understand ourselves as well as we understand the next person but climate change like coronavirus pandemic are quite sort of uh, abstract concepts in a way because they're not they're all they're all consuming all around us and we don't actually see them in their their physical form
0: I completely agree with you I think definitely there is like a parallel between like our understanding of climate change and our understanding of coronavirus pandemic because yeah as you say it's not a threat in it in the usual way because we'll fight against it and it's the same with climate change like we can't just use our typical um, violence to combat it it's like more collective and yeah and I think it is really interesting the parallel between those two kind of like abstract threats both highlight like our, us as humans are lack of control um more generally in the western world, like we've never had you know we well in England specifically, we don't face natural disasters like tornadoes or so we're not like we feel completely in control like the worst you have in the UK is flooding which can be awful but it's just nothing compared to what can happen in other countries so we feel like really disconnected from nature and that like humans will come up with the solutions and mm-hmm. it's like the pandemic has shown people that like human success is fragile and something as minuscule as a virus can like call our economy the very thing that we live and breathe to collapse and like, as scientists say, like in terms of the climate crisis, that's like just the beginning.
1: Um, there may be a point, um, and we can cover it in another episode to discuss with the the links um, not only between coronavirus and climate change, in the sense that has globalization and all of the impacts of that on climate change also caused um, coronavirus, but also has coronavirus helped with our um, so-called fight against climate change. Um, but That can be obviously discussed later. So you also mentioned the economic output being at an all-time high, um, and this was in 2015 and in the US. So this is what um, Obama was describing, and he also um, in the same sentence describes carbon emissions being at their lowest level. So you've got economic output all-time high versus carbon emissions at their lowest level, why do you think it's important to mention money and the economy
0: yeah i think it's really interesting that you like picked up on that specifically and i do think that in the western world that action on climate change won't be taken seriously until politicians really understand that it's the more economically viable thing to do that like because you know to mitigate climate change now it requires a lot of investment into Um, renewable energy or retrofitting houses or upgrading our transport fleet or coming up with new solutions but once it's understood that the economic consequences of climate change will be huge you know similar to what we've seen in the pandemic where you know that people can't work livelihoods are destroyed um there's more diseases so i think it is to mention the economy in discussions of climate change is essential um, because I do think like real action won't happen and because unfortunately that's the way the world as we know it works but I think it's um, interesting that you kind of pick up on like in capitalist societies because there's um, a really interesting book by Naomi Klein um, called This Changes Everything Capitalism vs Climate Change oh. kind of debating mm-hmm. whether we can mitigate climate change in a capitalist society. And Mm. I think that, again, this is something we could do a whole episode on because we could both read the book and then discuss it or something because it's a huge and really interesting topic and I'm not sure what my view is, but I just know that we don't really have time for a revolution against capitalism. Like, we need climate action now and I don't know how successful that will be, but there basically isn't time to wait. Think. What
1: you mean you, there's not time to wait to become not consumerist and not capitalist which by the sounds of things you imagine are um huge contributing factors to climate change which i agree with but in in saying that it's very difficult to unwrite our
0: social political history exactly like i think i mean i yeah i'm like cautious to say this because i need to do more research myself but i think i do agree that it's difficult to effectively mitigate climate change in a society that's dependent on growth Mm -hmm. but I'm just not sure whether it's possible to completely have a break away from capitalism and come up with some new society Mm -hmm. um, within the time frame that's needed. Very good point. Uh, I like your concern as well as
1: your thought process that there, there's two competing notions here. A really interesting little passage, which of course you picked up on in your dissertation at length, um, was paves the way. Um, so what I took from this was that Obama believed in the concrete the concreteness and the solidness of the Paris climate conference and of the goals that he was setting along with other nations at the conference. Um, so do you think he was right to believe in the conference in this way? And do you think it really has paved the way for nations in dealing with climate change matters?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think I kind of touched on this at the beginning, but like, at the time this was monumental And with countries like the US, the UK um, agreeing to keep global temperature rise below 1.5 degrees and reporting on this and making this a legally binding agreement, that is huge. But as I've also mentioned, then Trump withdrew from the agreement and now studies are suggesting that the UK is focusing more on the goal of net zero by 2050 rather than Um, keeping to 1.5 degrees of warming so I think it's like he was right at the time to be optimistic and if nothing else I think I mean I struggle with this myself maintaining optimism because when you understand the true extent of the climate crisis it's quite hard because you understand how big the challenge is but I think you have to remain optimistic because otherwise there's no point in us having these conversations like we might as well just give up if we're not optimistic
1: and there's hope with the rest of the world. And, um, for example, today I saw on the news that um, China had very surprisingly set its own quite um, courageous climate
0: yeah. goals. but that's really interesting as well. And this is definitely something we could discuss in another podcast because I was reading about that. And again, they're saying 2060. So these like targets are just creeping a bit further and further yeah. away by the, by the second but it's interesting that china made this announcement and the article i was reading was kind of saying that this will be a tactical decision with trump denying climate change and receiving public outrage that china then comes and says no we're going to mitigate climate change
1: the last little phrase i wanted to pick out goes back to what we were saying about personifying climate change um, says about climate change being gr- a growing threat that we face. And I wondered what that made you feel, Pippa, and whether you think that people in the US um, or the UK um, see climate change or face climate change as something that each of us in- is individually responsible for. Do we really face up to it in this in the way that that phrase describes?
0: Mm-hmm. I think this is a really interesting question and uh, like the thought of responsibility is really interesting and again like with all of these things they're huge topics that we could talk for at length and we could definitely do a whole another episode talking about responsibility but I think we kind of like mentioned that with our the like kind of view of our podcast is that um that like governments can feel in gridlock and you have people like Trump who don't believe in climate change and so it all feels futile so what's the point like ignore it then because there's nothing I can do so the only power that we have is the power of our individual actions so I think that that is hugely powerful and for us making this podcast is us taking action by yeah. hoping to open conversations engage with more people at the end of the day we're all part of a social movement and if we all make small changes that can help but I sometimes feel very conflicted on this because I think that placing the responsibility on the individual and specifically on the consumer is just another way to capitalize on climate change so making Mm -hmm. us feel guilty for our actions so therefore we spend 20 pounds on a reusable coffee cup And we carbon offset our flights, but we continue as normal. And I think when you kind of realise that, of course, I have some responsibility over the climate crisis, but the reality is that 100 companies are behind 70 percent of all global emissions and yet these companies are going switch off your lights to save the polar bear and you're like no stop uh, mining for fossil fuels like that's what you need to do you need to put that money into renewable energy then it becomes you know really hard to understand the importance of individual responsibility and yeah it's empowering to make changes in our lives but it's just sometimes feels like the wrong people are being shouted at like stop targeting the single mum driving her kids to school and instead um, target Bernard looney CEO of BP so. preach it honey yes you've made you've just made me think as well
1: about our um, our the way we view companies and the way we ima- um, we construct companies um, in the book sapiens a really really good um description of company and brand was um given um about Peugeot and that if we didn't believe in it and if we didn't um make it exist as as we're discussing here through language for example or through image um then the company wouldn't exist but does that mean or what I'm thinking right now is that does that mean that the people who are in the company who are running the company somehow take themselves out of their responsibility um and are making the company responsible it's all of the people inside it that need to be facing up to it Mm -hmm. and um i don't know maybe that is a bit my mind boggling but it seems very easy as you say to sort of push blame
0: definitely and like from in terms of like blame I I think we definitely are gonna have to do a whole podcast on responsibility and blame because there's like the one kind of um the, the case against Exxon who and again this links back to language because they were taken to court over basically a mass disinformation campaign where they knew that climate change existed and scientists were raising the alarm bell you know if we have fossil fuels, it will lead to warming temperatures and this will lead to this. Um, And rather than just saying, no, that's not true, what they did is just planted seeds of doubt and hired, paid millions of pounds to scientists to say that actually... Um, burning fossil fuels might not be the cause of increased CO2 so they launched this like mass disinformation campaign and recently they've been taken to court and I don't know the most recent update on that court case but it is really interesting and it's like can these companies be held to account and like is there any point when the worst damage has been done and who is responsible within that company And, and I think it's definitely really interesting looking at like responsibility and blame and it is just hard when the full responsibility is put on the consumer, and you have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. When the reality is, there's a, um, you know, coal plant in Poland that emits as much CO two as the whole of New Zealand every single day. Oh, <laughs> right. So I was trying to turn off the lights, but then I realised that these that guys aren't redundant. <laughs> <laughs> like, and it's so you definitely need both. I'm not saying that personal. Um, changes aren't important because that's a big way that we can like um encourage others and um showcase our beliefs but I'm just saying the conversation doesn't stop there yeah absolutely and
1: I think we'll we we've clearly um ascertained that there are many more episodes that need to be done on on this um, these ideas and not least we have um we have plans to do a whole series on language and climate change um so people who want to get involved in that please come forward um particularly we'd like to obviously compare um speeches between trump and obama and other leaders from other parts of the globe and see how different backgrounds um and and political philosophical cultural backgrounds change the use of language with climate change and change the use of action with climate change Um, but um as for now that's all we're going to have time for and thank you for listening
0: If you are interested or concerned by any of the issues raised during this podcast then please get in touch at contact at earthrights.co.uk or visit our website www.earthrights.co.uk. You can find full recordings of all of the episodes on most podcast platforms or on the Earthrights website Reference in the show notes. We host a blog on there too as well as recommendations and other information. Please also join in on the journey by following our Twitter and Instagram account at Earthrights underscore. If you would like to be involved
1: in an episode of the Earthrights podcast, then please also get in touch. This Earthrights podcast was hosted, produced and edited by us. Music and sounds were specially made for Earthrights by the Mowgli Wild Boys, who are currently recording a new LP at Circuit Studios in Nottingham. Please follow their Instagram and Facebook at Mowgli Wild Boys.